Here we go. You guys ready? Unstoppable Force. Unstoppable Force is our current teaching series. We're talking about the church. Jesus said in 1618 of Matthew, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's us. And that's what he's doing in us and through us. And so uh, we're learning what it means to be a healthy church as we walk our way through 1 Timothy. And we're learning how to be all that Christ died to make us. And we're going to be at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to talk about detect error. Detect error. A number of years ago, I heard a story of a woman who was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And she was so distraught because the doctor had just given her uh, not long to live. She was so distraught that she attempted to commit suicide. She couldn't bear the thought of slowly dying with cancer. So she attempted suicide, fortunately, unsuccessfully, only to find out that it was a misdiagnosis. Isn't that crazy? And I was kind of doing a little research on that, and I found that there was another story here in 2017 of a woman in Canada who was diagnosed with cancer, and um, she was actually looking for assisted suicide, and she was unsuccessful in that uh, search and what she was doing, only to find out it was... It was a misdiagnosis. She actually didn't have cancer. Take a look at your sermon notes there. Satan doesn't leave fang marks on the skin but lies in the heart. John 8 to 44, he's a liar. And uh, a lie believed to be true, think of those two stories I just shared. A lie believed to be true will affect your life as if it were true. And... um, That's why it tells us in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. So lies will imprison you. Lies will imprison you. I can't help but think, I mean, I I have lies that I struggle with. I'm sure that you have lies. If you could identify those lies, you're going to see how you're imprisoned by those lies. Lies will imprison you, but the truth will set you free, John 8.31 and 32. So who you are... Who you are can be no better or no worse. Who you are can be no better or no worse than the thoughts you entertain in your head. Remember the ring bear story last weekend? Kind of crazy story. The little four-year-old cute little guy thought he was the ring bear, B-E-A-R. No, you're the ring bearer, B-E-A-R-E-R. And so he really was showing us our behavior is the tangible expression of our beliefs. His behavior was the tangible expression of his wrong beliefs about his job. And uh, last week we talked about healthy believers and how life change happens. We talked about the components of faith. See, the components of faith are, are confession, conviction, commitment, truth entering the head, that's confession, outworking through the hands, I'm sorry, uh, igniting the heart, that's conviction, outworking through the hands, that's commitment. So confession, conviction, commitment. So it's really important that your confession is consistent with what the Bible teaches. Because what are you confessing? What are your beliefs? Are they accurate? Are they healthy? They're going to make a difference in in what you feel and how you behave. And um, and so I, I put on your notes there uh, a quote from 
Pastor Darren Dirksen, when he did the teaching back when Nancy and I were on our sabbatical this last summer, one of the teachings that all the guys did was Captivated. That was the title of it, series title. And he did a teaching on Colossians, which was a survey of the book of Colossians, Unity in Doctrine. Listen to what his definition on doctrine and really having healthy confession of faith. How do I know that my faith, my confession of faith is healthy? Well, sound doctrine originates with God, is recorded in the Word of God, and is consistent with the whole revelation of God. I mean, it makes sense, but you got to think you got to think it out and think, what, does that originate from God? What you're telling me, does that originate from God? How would I know that? Well, you go to the Word of God. But you could take scriptures and twist them. People do all the time. There's a lot of false teachers and teaching in our culture today, in many churches today, and they take specific little verses here and there, and they'll spin them and twist them, and, and it's very unhealthy. So it, does, it, does it match the whole? Is it consistent with the whole revelation of God? So false doctrine originates with men or demons and is foreign to the Word of God or inconsistent with the whole revelation of God. My, my wife, Nancy, worked for a bank as a teller in the early days of our marriage and told me that she was able to easily identify counterfeit bills because of her familiarity with the genuine. So it was, it was fascinating. She said, oh, yeah, well, I was able to spot counterfeits like that because I had I'd handled the genuine for so long. I was so familiar with what was true, I could identify the false just like that. Boom. And so your best defense against counterfeits, error, and lies is your familiarity with the genuine, with the truth. And next weekend, we'll, we'll talk more about that. The title will be Declare Truth. But but this weekend, we're looking at really three questions. Why detect error? We kind of talked about that. Why detect error? What is error and how to overcome error, how to overcome it? That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me once again? Let's go before the throne of grace. Ask God for his help as we study his word. So, Father, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who, who is the way to you, the truth about you, and the very life from you to those who by your grace put their faith in you and in him. We, we acknowledge that our culture and many churches are filled with error, lies, false teaching, and false teachers that enslave and lead astray, but your truth brings freedom unlike anything else. Teach us how we can discern the lies and be a church that is the pillar and foundation of truth, not only so that our lives will be set free, but also that you will use us to see many other lives set free. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 5, let me read through that. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord to us. And so um, let's work through this. Why detect error? Go back to verse 1. Keep your Bibles open. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, when are the latter times due? Are we living in the latter times? Yeah, absolutely. Latter times started with his first coming. They will end with his second coming. That is Jesus. And so we live in those latter times. Some will depart from the faith. They will defect from the faith. The faith here is not a feeling. It's not a force. It's not a formula as many TV preachers say it is. There's a lot of really unhealthy doctrine in their definition of faith. You need to be aware of that. So that's not what he's talking about here because that's not the definition of faith. But, but faith is, is objective truth written down for us in God's word. So it's objective truth telling us who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And many will drift away from that by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. So he's telling us the origin of these are coming from the demonic realm. Now, let me give you some fill-in-the-blanks here. So why detect error? If Satan can't get you to doubt God's existence, he'll get you to doubt God's goodness. And I'm using the word goodness as, a, as an all-inclusive word. It's not just his, his mercy, grace, and love, but it's also his holiness, justice, and righteousness. So it's all of who God is. He's, he's good. He's a good God. Genesis 3, 1 through 5, remember Adam and Eve and how they were tempted by the serpent. It shows us there how he tempts us, uh, how he gets us to doubt God's goodness. He does this by distorting God's word, what God says. So he distorts that or God's character, who God is. And so he said, you see that in that interaction with Eve, he said, did God really say that? He didn't say that. And then when push comes to shove, well, God's, God knows that if you eat of this tree, you're not going to die. In other words, he's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. And that's, that's the idea here. Um, here's what we need to understand about the goodness of God. He wants what is best for you. He knows what is best for you, and he will do what is best for you. He is perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, unlimited in power. And um, John 10.10 says, The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life to the what? Yeah. That's why Jesus came to this earth, so that we would have life and have life to the fullest. And, and, and what he's saying, that fullness of life is not only a quantity of life, but it is a quality of life that's found in him that all the success in this world can't give you and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. Real life is only found in him. And, and the more fully devoted to him you are, the more fullness of life you'll experience in him. God is not a restrictor. He's a liberator. In the garden, there was only one no and a billion yeses. And, and they were deceived. And, oh, he's holding out. He's not holding out on you. When you pursue him, oh, my goodness, you'll experience fullness of life 
unlike you've ever experienced before. I, I, I want to just, sometimes I want to grab people and go, come on, don't you get that? <laughs> and I realize that the only way they're going to get that is that the Holy Spirit has to open their eyes. Here's the next thing on your notes. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. That's why they don't get it, is because he blinds the minds of unbelievers and he seeks to lead astray the minds of, of believers. And uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 4, it says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So that's why you can, you can give your best testimony to your closest friend that's an unbeliever and they're gonna look at you with kind of this kind of blank stare on their face like, okay, whatever works for you. It's like, you, don't you understand? They're blinded. It's like, it's like trying to explain a, uh, a sunset to a blind person. And you'd begin to describe the colors. They have no concept of colors or any of that. You're just like trying to describe it. And they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. And they don't understand that. And that's, what he's, that's why when you pray for your friends, you pray that God would open their eyes Open their eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. But he leads astray the minds of believers. It says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, this is what Paul says, that I am afraid that somehow, uh, I'm afraid, how does that go? I'm, I'm thinking way ahead of myself. I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He doesn't care if you're here this morning. There's gonna be a lot of people in the churches here in the valley and throughout the United States and maybe throughout the world. He doesn't care whether you're attending church. He doesn't care whether you read the Bible. He doesn't care whether you pray. All he wants to do is lead your heart away from Christ. And you can have your heart a long ways away and do all of those things. Notice what... Paul says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What is sincere? Deep affection, awe, that, that he has your deepest affection. When do you, when do you pour your heart out to him? I, I hope that you, you're doing it this morning as we're doing it corporately as we studied last week, that his presence is here with us corporately. That's found in 3.16 of 1 Corinthians. We're the dwelling place of the living God corporately, but also individually, 6.19, it says that in 1 Corinthians. And so you can connect with God. You can know the God of the galaxies. Do you have that deep affection? Do you feel his deep affection for you? And, and do you pour your deep affection to him? Is there a sense of wow and awe? I asked my wife this last week, how many people do you know that have a real awe about their relationship with God? When you talk to them, they're just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I have intimacy with God. And she said, there's, there's a few, but not very many. And, and if that's true, then he's duped them already. And he, all, he tends to do that with all of us. You can sit in here and go through the motions and check the box and never really have a, an encounter with Christ. And he's got you. He's got you. If you came in here and you're just coming in here just to kind of go through the motions and check the box, you're missing why we gather. 
It's for you to have an encounter with Christ and give him your deepest affections and your deepest loyalties. That's that next word, pure, deepest loyalties, no idolatry. That's about intimacy, awe and intimacy with God. Awe and intimacy with God. Psalm 8 tells us that we are specks of dust in the vastness of the universe, yet we fill his mind and heart. We fill his mind and heart? Yeah, that's amazing. That stirs me. I want to know this God. I want to connect with him. I don't want to have anything interfere with my relationship with him. I'm going to, there's, going to, there's times in my life I mean, daily I give him my deepest affections and loyalties. Loyalties meaning I don't want anything to interfere. If there's a book I'm reading, if there's a movie I'm watching, if there's music I'm listening to that would draw my heart from him, boom, it's gone. I want to know him. I want to experience him in my life. There's nothing better than knowing the living God. And the enemy is trying to lead your heart astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And um, so it's, so if you, listen, if you had any idea what he thinks about you, how he feels about you, what he wants to do in and through your life, you would run to him. You would run to him and you would be filled with a humble confidence. You would be humbled by the fact that the God of the galaxies that could crush you in a moment loves you and adores you and has drawn you into relationship with him. I'm often just overwhelmed. I, I've told you, I'm, I'm getting, getting old, and the older I get, the more that just captivates me, the more that just turns me on. I mean, it's just like, oh, my goodness, that lights me up. I mean, I, just, I love Jesus. I can't believe what he did for me. I just, I can't get over it. It's just, it just has gotten a hold of my heart. It gets better. It gets better for me all the time. I'm glad I get to do what I do. I, I can't believe I get to do what I do. I get to talk to you about my favorite person, Jesus, out of my favorite book, the Bible. And I just love it. And so I hope it stirs your heart also. Here's two ways to defect. Here's the next point. So it's, I, I should have wrote that differently. It's not like I'm inviting you to defect, Okay. Oh, here's two ways to defect. Let's all defect together. Actually, if you were to look at your life, and this is how the enemy draws our hearts away from, from God, is religion or irreligion, moral conformity or self-discovery. Religion is moral conformity. Irreligion is self-discovery. I'll tell you, I'll show you which one that I tend to be drawn away uh, from God by. And I'll also tell you how my wife is often uh, drawn away from God, too. Hers is worse than mine, of course. And, 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 if, and if I know you well, I can tell you how you're easily drawn away just by your conversation with me. <laughs> you want to hang out? <laughs> no. Okay, so two ways to defect. Really, these two ways are represented in Luke 15, 11 through 32. You guys know what that story is? It's the, the two, it's, it's the prodigal sons. Actually, I call them both of the prodigal sons. A lot of times we, we read the story and we think it's just one son that, was, that abandoned the father. Actually, both of them had. 
One son took his inheritance and went out and blew it on, on crazy wild living in prostitutes and spent it all. Famine hit the land, and he uh, came to his senses. He's eating pig slop. He's in the, with the pigs, and famine hits land, and while he's in with the pigs trying to make ends meet, trying to survive, he comes to his senses, and he begins to think, hey, wait, wait, wait. My dad treats his hired servants better than what I'm experiencing right now. What am I, insane? Yes. And so go back to dad. So he goes back to dad. Dad sees him at a distance and runs out to him. It's just just an amazing story. You're going to have to read the story. I don't have time to go through the story, but dad runs out there and smothers him with kisses. It's almost as if God is scanning horizon just looking for the son to come back. And And the glimpse of his son coming back, he runs out there, which was very undignified for a patriarch, especially for him to lift up his robe and to run out to that son and love on him. And so he throws a party, and the elder brother is out in the fields. Here's the party going on. And he says, hey, what's going on? Your younger brothers come back home, and they're throwing a party. And he goes, what? He's ticked off. I'm not going in. So dad comes out to him and says, come on, come on in the party. Your brother was lost. Now he's found. Come on, we're celebrating. He goes, dad, I've obeyed you perfectly in every way. You never threw me a party. And the dad looks at him like, what? And he says something really profound, 11th, uh, 15th chapter, 31st verse of that text, he says this. He says this. This is very convicting for me because that's my tendency is to be the elder brother. I never did the younger brother gig. I went the elder brother way. And, and he says, he looks his son in the eyes and he says, I've always been with you and all that is mine is yours. Don't don't you understand what you have in me? So the younger brother left the father and the farm. The elder brother left the father without leaving the farm. And so how this works is uh, religion, moral conformity is about keeping all the rules and irreligion, so that's religion, irreligion, self-discovery is by breaking all the rules. And you can, you can sin by keeping all the rules for all the wrong reasons. That's the elder brother, out of fear and pride and not out of a love and a heart smitten by the Father and by your love for the Father. And you can also sin by breaking all the rules. That's the younger brother. Both are self-salvation projects of putting yourself in the place of God. Both are using the Father to get what their hearts most want. It is believing that the ultimate satisfaction is found in the Father's wealth rather than in his love. Getting from him rather than being with him. And there's a couple different ways. Irreligion, this is on your notes. Irreligion, uh, the younger brothers are deceived by the pleasures of life. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. If it feels good, do it. They're very secular. They're living for now. No thought of tomorrow or even into the future, eternity. They're convinced that created things will bring more happiness than the creator. Religion or elder brothers are often disillusioned by the pain of of suffering. They're disillusioned. They have an attitude of superiority or despair based on how well they are keeping the rules. It's really all about keeping rules. It's really fear or pride-based, joyless. So why do they keep the rules? Fear or pride. Fear, I don't want God to get me. Or pride, I don't want to be like all those losers that aren't living up to the standard. So fear or pride-based 
joyless compliance to rules. But here's the point. Bitterness, they become bitter when things don't go well because they feel entitled. God owes me. I've seen a lot of believers defect from the faith when hard times hit. Hey, I went to church, I read my Bible, I put money in the box, I was even part of a small group, and God does this, he allows this to happen to me. And immediately I know, elder brother, you missed the fact that he's always been with you, his presence, oh my goodness, and all that is his is yours. Don't you realize the, the wealth of riches that you have in the gospel? That would be enough to last you the rest of your life regardless of what goes down if you understood what you had in him. And so that's, that's that. That's why we need to detect error. And so you need to identify which one are you most easily led astray by. Is it elder brother, younger brother? Now, by the way, some of us kind of go between the two. And we miss, we miss the gospel. We'll talk about that and what that looks like in just a minute. But let's go to the next one. What is error? What is error? Let's identify this even more so. Verses 2 through 3. Through the insincerity of liars and whose consciences are, are seared. It's fascinating. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul writing to Timothy here is saying insincerity. He means hypocrisy. So it's actually coming from people who are living a double life, double standard. Who they are in public is different from their private life. That's the idea here of liars. So not only are they living a double life, but they're telling you things that are really a lie. They're not consistent with God's word, and their consciences are cleared. They can look you in the eyes without even blinking, and they're very convincing. They might even be really funny. They might even be hilarious. I heard someone tell me not too long ago that they go to this particular church because the pastor is hilarious. <laughs> That's so wonderful. It's like, what the heck? Sorry. I'm just thinking, there's got to be more criteria than that. What is he saying? Think. Think. He might be real funny, but he might be really wrong too. It might be bad doctrine. And so... That's what's interesting. Their consciences are seared who forbid marriage. So he goes into asceticism here is what he's talking about here. Sacrifice, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, is what we've already studied here a few weeks ago. Paul says, wage the good warfare. So this is what we're about. This is what we need. Wage the good warfare. It's a battle by holding on to faith. Now remember, faith is not a feeling. It's not a force. It's not a formula. If you work the formula, you're going to get what you want. That, that's taught by a lot, of, a lot of guys and gals out there. It's bad stuff. It's objective truth. What does the Bible say? Who is God? Who are we in light of God? And so it's objective truth. Notice what he says, holding on to faith, objective truth of God's word, and a good conscience, otherwise you will shipwreck your faith. So, so you need to know what the Bible teaches. You need to know the truth, and then you need to regularly recalibrate your heart, your conscience. It's like a fire alarm, like a, like a smoke alarm that should go off when you find yourself veering out, when the enemy is leading you astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
immediately that smoke alarm goes off. You go, whoa, wait a minute. That's not good thinking. That's not good teaching. That's not good doctrine. That's not consistent with what the Bible teaches. I need to get back. Otherwise, I'm going to shipwreck my faith. Wage the good warfare is what he says. You're going to shipwreck your faith. I've seen it. It breaks my heart. I've been doing this a long time. I've seen a lot of people crash and burn. It's because they're bad doctrine. It's because they're unhealthy churches that they attend. It's because of the false teaching that's so prevalent in our culture today that they embrace. It wrecks havoc in our lives. And that's why he says you got to... You've got to wage the good warfare, holding on to faith, knowing what you believe, calibrating our hearts. That's what we do every week around here. We're recalibrating our hearts. I'm challenging you. Bring your heart back in alignment with who Christ is, what he's done for you. I, I, I plead with you. You've got to do that or you're going to shipwreck your faith. Now, religion run amok. I've got a list here. It's a long list and all rooted in doubting the goodness of God in the gospel, you will see both elder brother and younger brother characteristics in all of these. Now, here's the crazy thing about this is that every church tends to swing to one of these two extremes, elder brother, younger brother. Here's what I want you to do real quick. I'll just give you like 30 seconds to do this, but define, because define legalism, and liberalism. Legalism would be elder brother. Liberalism would be younger brother. You need to be able to identify that because if you leave Desert Breeze and go to another church, you need to be able to say, hey, where are these? And you need to hold us accountable too. Hey, you guys are kind of swinging out to that elder brother kind of nonsense. Or you guys are swinging towards more of that younger brother kind of liberalism. And we need to know where the gospel is. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so, in fact, let's define all three of those. Let's define legalism, liberalism, and the gospel. And so, that's not on your notes, is it? Some of you look down and you go, oh, is that, where's, I need help. Okay, I, I know. I'm going to help you in just a minute if you don't know it. I'm glad you're here. If you don't know it, that's fine. That's why you're here. I'm going to explain that to you. But you need to know that. You need to be able to recite this, by the way. You really do. You need to know the difference when you're swinging out to these extremes because churches tend to do that. So, real quick, 30 seconds, discuss it. Legalism, liberalism, and the gospel. What's the dis difference between those three. Okay, it's not hard. Okay, did you guys get that down? Do you think you might know what it is? Okay, let's sh go ahead, uh, check your neighbor's paper. And, uh, and so let's see. Uh, so every church tends to swing to one of these two extremes. Legalism is I obey, therefore God accepts me. That's legalism. I obey, therefore God accepts me. Law is primary. Love is secondary. His blessings are conditional. 
And we could talk a lot about that, but we're not. We don't have time, but let's work through this. Liberalism, antinomianism would be more younger brother. So the legalism is elder brother. This is younger brother. God accepts me, therefore I don't have to obey. Love is primary and law is secondary. His blessings are unconditional. God just loves and accepts everybody, so it really doesn't matter how you live. There's an antinomianism that's taught in a lot of churches too. That's what that is. And so, but the gospel is this, God accepts me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. I want to obey. Because of the cross, Jesus completely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love us completely unconditionally. I take the law and sin seriously, not to earn my salvation, but because I have salvation in Christ and want to honor and live for his glory. It's why you do the law. Why do you obey him? Because you have salvation. You love him. You want to honor him. Now, let's go through this list. We'll go through it quickly. I didn't give you any fill-in-the-blanks because I just want you to think through this list, and I want you to put a check on your notes. Check mark those you struggle with or churches or, you know, maybe you've heard teachings out there on TV, radio, or churches even here in the valley. Maybe you've attended in the past, or maybe you're going to them currently. We get people from other churches coming here regularly. And uh, so evaluate your church. Evaluate this church. Hold us accountable. Here they are, followerism. Okay, obviously I made that word up. But followerism, and it's more devoted to a specific leader, denomination, or church than Christ. That's what he's talking about here in verse 2. He's, he's defining these guys who can look you in the eyes and tell you things. And they might even, like I said, they might even be funny. Oh, they, they're great storytellers. I've heard that one before. Oh, he's a phenomenal storyteller. He's very inspirational. Oh, that's wonderful. Don't be intellectual lazy like most people in America today. We don't think out what we believe. What did he say? What did he mean by that? Is that consistent with God's word? And, uh, and so that's what he's talking about here in verse 2. Galatians 4.17, I'm going to refute each of these with a Bible verse. Galatians 4.16, they are making much of you. This is Paul. They are making much of you so that you'll make much of them. D- did you know that that's the strategy of some churches? They'll make much of you so you'll make much of the leaders in, the, in this church. Make much of the church. Romans 16, 18, they aren't serving the Lord but their own appetites is what it says in Romans 16, 18. This is why people defect from the faith. This is why people defect from the faith when leaders fall, denominations let them down or churches have conflict or split. They have more affection and loyalty to their leader, denomination, church than Christ. I don't know how many times I've talked to people, oh, yeah. In fact, I have a relative of mine that defected from the faith because their senior pastor ran off with the secretary. And I'm thinking, what? Jesus is still the same. I don't care what anybody does. Where's your eyes? Who are you looking to? And so oftentimes these churches, there's churches that will promote the church more so than than Christ. It's more about following that church or leader or denomination. Get your eyes off of that. Put your eyes on Jesus because all of those will let you down, but he never will let you down. And, and, 
That's important. Here's another thing I've seen people do is that when they've been hurt, I know a few people like this, they've been hurt by a church, and so, okay, I know I need to go to church, so we'll just go to, we'll find the, the biggest church in the valley and just go in there and hide out. We'll put money in the box here, but don't ask us to get involved. We don't even want to know what's going on there. That's so stinking unhealthy. It's unbelievable. I see people do that all the time. We'll just kind of go through the motions, check the box. The enemy's got you. He's led you astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Asceticism is also what he's talking about here in verse 3. He's talking about sacrifice, you know, with... uh, keeping from marriage or sex or certain foods, and that's, that's asceticism. My right standing with God is based on my sacrifice, not Christ. Colossians 2.23 basically says asceticism or sacrifice can make you look very spiritual, but is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's behavioral modification, not heart transformation is really what it is. It's kind of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Your heart needs to be transformed by the gospel. And um, here's the next one, legalism. I keep the rules, therefore God accepts me and blesses me. We know that's not true. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourself, so it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then there's moralism. Oh, and a lot of these are very closely related. I deserve a good life because I am basically a good person. Well, guess what? Romans 3.23 would tell you otherwise. You're not very good. I know you think you're really good, but for all have sinned. The Bible has a way of leveling the playing field. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You desire and you seek to find your satisfaction in many other things other than Christ. You fail to see how desirable and how satisfying he is. That's our sin. That's the root of our sin. Our hearts have been led astray from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Mysticism, this is a little bit more of the background I came from. I saw this in some of the church experiences that are very maybe Pentecostal and more charismatic. And and not that they all do this, but I've seen this pursuit of an emotional experience rather than the pursuit of Christ. I'm just not feeling it. Well, I don't care whether you're feeling it or not. What does the Bible say? It doesn't matter what you're feeling, regardless of your circumstances or people or things or how you're feeling. Go back to God's word. Go back to God's word. We live by faith and not by sight, by feelings. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Hebrews 11:1. 1. That's why I like this, the quote from Lewis, that faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. You go back to the instrument panel of God's word when you're flying through the clouds and you become disoriented. Don't go by your feelings. Oh my goodness. Go back to his word. He hasn't left you. He hasn't abandoned you. He's still working in your life. He's going to take the bad circumstances and work them for your good. Preach the gospel to your heart. Oh my goodness. You've got to do that. You're going to crash. You're going to crash that plane, your life. Ooh, I'm, I'm passionate about this because I want you guys to know the truth and to experience the freedom that only the truth can give you. Formalism, I'm involved in a lot of church activities with very little heart change. Jesus actually quoted Isaiah 29, 13 about the Pharisees. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You're just going through the motions. Oh, my goodness, give him your heart. 
Give them your heart. Activism. There are churches that are really all about social justice. More concerned about temporal suffering than eternal suffering. Matthew 5.16. Let our light shine before men so that they can see our good deeds and do what? Glorify our Father in heaven. Yes, we're concerned about social justice. You heard what Darren said last weekend about our missions and outreach efforts. Oh my goodness, you, are, you guys are doing a phenomenal job. But we're not just concerned about suffering in general. We're concerned, we're, we're more concerned. So, so we are concerned about all suffering. We're concerned about all suffering, no doubt about it, especially, especially eternal suffering. Does that make sense? And so when we help to take, people, take care of people's needs, suffering in the temporal realm, it's so that we can have a platform to speak into their life. We do it, no strings attached, but so that we can bring the gospel to them so that they can be saved from eternal suffering. And then uh, biblicism, I know a lot about God and the Bible, but don't know God. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So as you grow in your knowledge of God, this is what should be happening. Your capacity to love him and to experience his love and to love others and to experience their love should be growing. That's healthy Christianity. Okay, you can quote a lot of scriptures. You know a lot about morality and all that stuff, and you can tell me a lot about God. Do you know God? Do you know his love? Do you have increased capacity for that? Oh, and here's the next one. This, was, this is one of my favorite right here. Actually, unfavorite, I guess. be a better way to say it. Prosperityism. It's not a word. I made it up. Okay. But it's prosperity gospel. Health and wealth are always God's will for you. That's what the prosperity gospel says. Listen to me. Most TV preachers are in this category. Let me say it again. Most TV preachers are in this category. Listen to their theology. Listen to their theology. It's, it's, it's this. Health and wealth are always God's will for you. They're successful because it appeals to our sinful nature. And I went to a fire department reunion for my academy class a number of years ago where they asked me to pray. At the end of the prayer, I had one of, my, uh, one of the students, one of the guys that got on the job with me, came over to me, and he was ticked. He looked me in the eyes, and he said, my mom died giving every last dime to a TV preacher thinking that she could buy her healing in her right standing with God. And I just, I, I was a broken heart. I said, I'm so sorry. He was a charlatan. He was a false teacher, more than likely, and she believed him. And I'm sorry, because that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And I tried to explain to him, but he was, he was upset. He was angry. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer, the Greek here means difficult circumstances or sickness, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And oftentimes these TV preachers are people that have this doctrine. By the way, we've had people, there's people that will come to Desert Breeze. There's people that have left Desert Breeze over this one. I have no problem with that. I want them to know the truth. I have no problem t 
telling them that that theology is bad and it's unhealthy. And oftentimes what they do is, well, you, don't, you didn't get your healing and you don't get your money because you either lack faith or you have sin in your life. Oh, wow, you just put yourself in the category of Job's miserable comforters. And oh, by the way, read the whole story there because God was really upset at them at the end of the book and told Job, you need to pray for them because I'm coming down on them hard because their theology is bad and they misrepresent me. I had a TV preacher, I was talking to Gary here this morning. We were talking about a TV preacher that is he's horribly obnoxious. And, uh, and he actually said this statement. He says, don't you feel better when you have $100 in your back pocket? Don't you feel better? I'm thinking, what the heck, dude? I said, do you even understand what you have in Christ? Because all the money in my back pocket doesn't even come close to being a child of the king of the universe. And when you've spent time in the throne room of the king of the universe who happens to be your daddy, your father, people, things, and circumstances are minimalized, almost inconsequential. I could have a million dollars in my back pocket and it doesn't even come close to what I have in him. It's like, what in the world? That doesn't make any sense to me. And he was just promoting this whole idea, more money and, yeah, you, you can be wealthy like me. And if you just work this, these principles, it's like, it's, it's bad theology. It's unhealthy. And, um, okay, and then there's narcissism. Some churches actually teach this form also. And some of us believe this. Life is all about me. By the way, beware of man-centered churches versus God-centered churches. When you come here, we don't want you to, to walk away going, wow, wow, what a great church. Wow, what a handsome pastor. <laughs> we don't want you to do that. Though you could do that, I, I understand. Okay, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'll pay a couple of you to say that, though, at the end of the service. No, we don't, want you to, we don't want you to say that. We want you to walk away. Wow, what a great worship team. Whoa, whoa, they're really talented. Whoa, what great music. Oh, wow. Everything they do is just state-of-the-art. No, we want, to walk, want you to walk away going, wow, what a great God. We want you to encounter God. We want you to know the true and living God. And um, listen to what it says. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, when we cater our worship to the worshipers and not to the object of our worship, we have created human-centered churches that appeal to our sinful nature, our, our, our self-centeredness. You can grow large churches by doing that, by the way, and make it all about you, make it all about the church. I've even listened to people's testimony from time to time, and I'll ask this question when people give their testimony. Who's the hero of the story here? Is it that person? Is it that church? Or is it really Christ? And oftentimes, it's more about that person. They persevered, and they toughed it out, and woo, great for you. No. The hero of our story is Jesus. Always is, always has been, always will be. Healthy churches have a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. Here's the next one, therapeuticism. I love how I made up all these words. God wants me to be happy and feel good about myself. 
Well, actually, 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, no, God wants you to be holy because it's in your holiness that you will find the happiness your heart longs for. And then there's deism. God exists to bless me and make my dreams come true. Well, actually, Mark 8, 34 through 35, Jesus calling the crowd to him with, along with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, come, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then there's cultism, denial or distortion of essential Christian doctrine. Really, who is Christ and what did he do? And the... the the group that would fit into this category would be the Jehovah Witnesses, obviously, Mormonism, Christian science, the list goes on. But I've heard people say, but they're such nice people. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So was BTK and Ted Bundy. <laughs> BTK, dude, was, was a leader in his church. By the way, BTK, bind, torture, and kill. That's what he did. He's in prison. If you ever read his story, he was, he was part of a local church. But they have some good things to say. Antifreeze doesn't taste so bad, but it will kill you. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Here's how we, we handle... Uh, you know, really understanding the truth. In the essentials, there's unity. So what are the essential beliefs? You need to know the essential beliefs. And you need to know the essential beliefs from the non-essential beliefs. But in non-essentials, there's liberty. We can debate it, but we're not gonna divide over it. And there should be harmony. There are churches in the valley that would take non-essentials and turn them into essentials. There's churches real close to us that does that. And they would say that, oh, if you don't abide by these, then you're heretical. Well, you've confused essential and non-essential. But ultimately, in all things, there should be love. So truth matters. You can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. Proverbs 14, 12, and 16, 25, it says there's a way that seems right to a man, but leads to destruction. So how to overcome error. We'll do this quickly. Verses four through five, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. This is in response to the asceticism that he's talking about here, sacrifice of some created good to win God's approval and blessing. So elder brothers are typically guilt-driven when it comes to created things or don't even think about how they're using created things. Younger brothers tend to be greed-driven when it comes to created things. And as I stated, God is not a restrictor. He's a liberator. This is the point that he's making. God's not a restrictor. He's a liberator. When you understand grace, man, you should be celebrating life and all that you have through the gospel. In the garden, he gave one no and a billion yeses. So here it is. Everything created is a gift from God and a pointer to the only one who can satisfy your heart. That's verse 4 a is what he's talking about here. So Psalm 19, creation is nonverbal communication of God's glory. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from God. So I've often heard this. Don't seek the giver. Don't, don't seek the, the giver instead of... Oh, I, I'm sorry. Let me get this right. Don't seek the giver instead of the gifts... So that's what I've been told before. Seek the giver instead of the gifts. 
Seek the giver instead of the gifts. Don't seek the giver instead of the gifts. Seek the giver through the gifts. In other words, don't make a distinction between, no, you can't have those. You shouldn't do that. Just should seek him alone. No, no, no. Seek him through what he's given you. That's the idea here. Does that make sense or did I just confuse it? I try not to, but sometimes I do. Don't seek the giver instead of the gifts. Don't seek the giver instead of the gifts. Seek the giver through the gifts. That was what I'm trying to say. Creation serves its highest purpose when it points our hearts to the creator. Now, if you're having problem with idolatry with the gifts, you may need to eliminate some of those gifts if they draw your heart away from him. It is to be received with thanksgiving that is rooted in who God is, not in what God does or what God gives. So it is to be received with thanksgiving that is rooted in who God is, not in in what God gives. The proper use of the physical pleasures, as he's talking about here, sex, marriage, and food, is that they should send our hearts Godward with the joy of gratitude that finds its foundation in the goodness of God himself, not in his gifts. This means that if in the providence of God these gifts are ever taken away, which we will eventually lose all, all gifts, perhaps by death or spirit the death of a spouse or the demand of a feeding tube, the deepest joy we had through them will not be taken away because God is still good. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's where your joy is. Created things, marriage, sex, food, can awaken and strengthen our thanksgiving in God. That's how it's made holy. It awakens and strengthens our thanksgiving in God through the word, through the word of God. When we use created things according to his loving and wise design and prayer, when we're empowered by his Holy Spirit through prayer. By the way, change that verse. It's actually 1 Corinthians 10.31 as opposed to 2 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This will lead us into our communion here. The cross secured our eternal satisfaction in the creator so that we could maximize our enjoyment of creation. I believe that Christians should celebrate like nobody created things because we know the creator that gave these things to us. And that should keep us from being elder brothers. So the cross secured our eternal satisfaction in in the creator so that we could maximize our enjoyment of creation and not be an elder brother, but protecting us from idolatry, keeping us from being younger brothers. Let's pray. So Father God, we confess our sinful tendency to either be elder brothers who try to earn our salvation through good works or younger brothers who think it doesn't matter how we live because because you just love and forgive everybody. Help us to live out the brilliant balance of the gospel that that we are accepted in Christ, therefore we want to obey. We are saved not by anything we do, but by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. 
May our confession of faith in his indispensable and costly love for us on the cross ignite our hearts with an appetite for him that exceeds all other appetites. And as we abide and dwell and make our home in the truth of your word, may it protect us from lies and bring freedom to every area of our lives for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. Three st-